Script Pipeline reviews screenplays and TV pilots to connect writers with Hollywood's top producers and managers. For over 20 years, the company has helped launch the writing careers of some of the industry's brightest talent, resulting in spec sales totaling over $7 million. Learn more at scriptpipeline.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to be discussing what we think are worthy TV writing samples. And to do that, we are bringing in two other special guests, fellow TV writers, Kai Wu and Liz Alper. But before we do that, we are going to take a look at our monthly Paper Tease segment and check out the latest teasers that you guys have sent in to us. This is our January paper tease session. Uh, if you don't know what paper tease is by now, it's where we give feedback on our listeners' teasers. And with our paper team mentorship coming up, we've set the deadline for paper tease submissions to March 2nd. So if you want to hopefully get feedback on your own teasers, you can send them at paperteam.co slash teaser. All right, let's get into it. Our first paper tease is from our Patreon supporter, Diana Lampiasi. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And her script is called Endwell, and it's a drama. And here's the summary. We hear the voiceover of park ranger Georgia Hayes recounting the origins of the mythical Jersey Devil, and we see the visuals of the beast's birth in a flashback to the 1700s. We then cut to today to see that Georgia is recounting the tale while leading a tour group through a state forest. She dismisses it as only a story, but then hears a demonic shriek from the forest and turns to find a dead man pinned to a tree with a wooden spike and his liver missing. Uh, what were your thoughts on Endwell? I quite liked it. I did like the juxtaposition of this very sort of visceral old-timey flashback in the 17th century compared to present-day tour guide sort of uh, jokingly discussing uh, this myth. Now, with that said, I thought the opening was a little bit more akin to a feature opening than a TV teaser, but overall it did work for me. Yeah, I agree. I think that it did a really good job, especially of setting up the tone with this kind of creepiness and tension and you know, establishing the, the darkness of this forest and what might be out there. So I enjoyed that about it. It's also kind of a concept that's examining the myth of the Jersey Devil, which I can't really recall having seen anything about. So that's a, a fun kind of take on you know a supernatural type show with a park ranger. And another thing I really enjoyed about this one was the character description. I think that she did a really good job of introducing Georgia Hayes, cool, confident, swoonworthy, Ruby Rose type on the outside sharp sarcastic ellen page type on the inside loves nature drinks whiskey neat will come change your tire if you get stuck to me that really paints a strong picture of the character it's funny because although i do agree by that first half especially the ruby rose uh, sarcastic ellen page i thought that was really interesting and vivid the other half where it mentions you know she drinks whiskey neat and will definitely come change your tire if you get stuck with a flat although i like it on paper uh, in practice it didn't really fit for me what was going on in that scene whereas the ellen page ruby rose was directly relevant to what was going on yeah, no, I mean, it is always divisive, including certain things in character description that you can't see or might not be relevant to the here and now. But I, I think it gave me an idea of her as almost like a female Ron Swanson type. And uh, <laughs> I think that kind of helped communicate the tone in which he might be giving this to her and that sort of thing. Now, that said, there was, I wouldn't call it an issue, but for me, the tone sometimes, it started veering into comedy to the point where I wasn't sure if this was meant to be a dark drama or if it was more of kind of a horror comedy, like a stand against evil type thing where we're kind of making light of these myths and th this black comedy to it. And that's, again, it's not necessarily a problem, but maybe it could have 
led more strongly in one direction or the other. Yeah, I had a, a similar thought myself in terms of the tone, uh, especially if uh, the goal is to play up that disconnect between that creepy ancient story and the store guide who doesn't really care about the myth and almost jokes about it. Then in that flashback, or I guess a flash sequence, perhaps you could heighten these elements and make it even weirder. That could be a bad pitch to it. I'm just saying that I think you could play up the tone differences if that's the intent. Yeah, there was something about putting it all out on the table, seeing the beast right away as it's born and growing up, and then someone hits it with a fire poker and that sort of thing that, that suggested that it wasn't being taken entirely seriously or played entirely for horror. Like it wasn't like what you'd see in an American horror story version of that, where, you know, it's really, really all in on the horror and the screams and the, you know, maybe not seeing quite everything there. So maybe there's room to play with how much do I actually want to show of this monster throughout the thing. And I think sometimes the more you see of the monster and the more tangible it is, the less scary it becomes. Right. Absolutely. And I feel like you already have that idea built in with uh, the fog that is sticking, quote unquote, to the creature. So you can build the mystery around it, assuming that the end goal is to sort of build up the fear and the tension in that scene. Uh, now, I did have some very micro notes in terms of the setup of that scene. Uh, first of all, I would probably start the whole uh, pilot at night. I think the first couple of scenes, which are expositionary shots of the forest are in daytime, even though we're almost uh, instantly smashing into this night flashback, then I would probably start the whole thing at night instead of daytime. I would also perhaps uh, start the voiceover earlier and trim it down and uh, sort of breaking it up with the already existing action, because as it currently stands, you do have little blocks of voiceover, which are fine uh, in of themselves, but uh, you already have the room to break it up and, and make it a little bit more readable. Yeah, it was interesting to me that we introduced this town of Endwell and then didn't really spend any time in it. Right. Uh, and then we were right into the state park and all the stuff that was going on there. So maybe Endwell is something that you introduce at the opening of Act 1 when they're back in town or something like that. Or find a way to make it more relevant to the teaser itself, perhaps. Especially if it's the name of the script. Totally. All right, so what would make you want to read on more with this script versus not? I actually quite liked it, like I said. I think we're both in agreement that the tone was there overall, even though there could be some uh, confusion in terms of where it fits in the scale of comedy versus drama. That said, if the tone is clearly laid out on one end or the other, it would really bring the piece even more to the forefront. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious to see more about this setting. It's it's an interesting place with a lot of secrets and interesting things happening. And I'm curious to see how this character will be involved in that. Yeah, so I think I'd be more inclined to read on than not. And the next script is tested by Melissa Long. And in this drama or the teaser of this drama, uh, over a speech given by Angelica, who is a superintendent in downtown Chicago, we intercut a SWAT team storming into an elite prep school and a bloodied, traumatized schoolgirl who is Angelica's daughter, and she's reeling in the bathroom. During that speech, Angelica also learns of the school shooting. We then cut to black and come back to Angelica in her home. She's trying to find her daughter, walking from room to room, and suddenly finding reporters bombarding her with questions in one of the rooms. Confused, she staggers backwards and slams into her daughter. Before she processes what's going on, the daughter raises a gun and shoots Angelica. Angelica then jerks awake in a hospital room 36 hours later. 
A nurse helps her up and advises her to rest at home. We then see that Angelica is waiting at the bedside of her husband in some sort of coma state. She scrolls through her contacts on her phone and dials an unknown number with a biohazard for contact photo. The number seems to be disconnected, but then goes to a voicemail. She finally leaves a message on that voicemail. What did you think of Tested? So there's a, a lot going on here, and each of those individual things that are happening are interesting in and of themselves, but when you throw so many of them at the audience at once in the space of the teaser, I think it does more of a disservice to the story than not. You know, just the sheer fact of this woman being the school superintendent, whatever it was called, and her daughter being involved in a school shooting at the same time and finding out during the speech, that could be a teaser in and of itself. But then we also have these dreams, and then we have her at the hospital, and then we have her picking up the phone and calling this other thing, introducing all these elements and elements and elements. So we, we, you know, we've always said like, make your teaser interesting and hooking, but I think it's almost veering too far into that territory where you could save a little more of that for the script. A hundred percent. I feel like there's so much elements like you pointed out. I mean, just the reading of the summary in of itself was long because there's so much to unpack here. And that's not, you know, criticism of the content as much as just the amount of it and the logistics of it, if you will. The first time I read it, I actually misread the sequence where Angelica is in her home trying to find her daughter. I read it literally, essentially, not as a dream sequence, but she's actually trying to find her daughter. And then her daughter shoots her. And I thought that was an awesome way to end a teaser. And then it kept going 36 hours later. And then we realized, oh, wait, this is not actually a real thing. This is a dream sequence that she's having, I'm assuming, whilst in a hostel room uh, waiting for her husband. Again, it got a little bit confusing there. So that thread uh, was lost for me. But I do think there is something to the idea of this superintendent mother who has a daughter in this school shooting, and then the daughter is actually the girlfriend of the other shooter, or maybe, you know, she's also a shooter. And then at the end, the daughter shoots the mother. To me, like, that was very impactful, and that was probably the most arresting image of the entire teaser. So I think... Again, this is a dream sequence. And I don't know if the intent was to make it literal, but I got a little bit confused in, in, in that sense. Yeah. And certainly I think to your point, even if it was a dream sequence, she can wake up after the end of the teaser and right. realize, oh, she didn't actually shoot her. But then, you know, again, we go to this thing where it's actually the husband who's in hospital and we don't know why. And then she picks up the phone and calls the thing. So yeah, it was just like so much to unpack in that one thing. And occasionally the way that it was written on the page was a little disorienting or confusing in the way that the description and the location was handled. Like, you said with the she's looking through a bathroom she turns around and there are reporters there now we understand after unpacking it that that's a dream sequence and it's meant to be weird that there are reporters in her house but just the way it was out on the page led to more confusion than mystery absolutely and again to go back to those logistics i think slug lines are important not just from a production standpoint but really for the reader to understand where we are when the action is happening and even at the top when we have this intercut between her speech which is outside and the SWAT team storming the school. Most of the action seems to discuss the SWAT team intervening in the high school, which is fine, but the whole sequence is meant to be an intercut. So it was, again, unclear why make it an intercut if we're not going to have anything prose-related with Angelica. It could just be the SWAT team sequence with voiceover from Angelica, for example. It's a lot of those small elements of logistics that add up to the confusion. And one more micro note, some of the editorializing in the script was a bit strange. So for example, when Angelica wakes up in the hostel room and the nurse says, oh, you should go home, you're tired. But Angelica says, oh, actually, I'm going to stay here next to this person that I really care about. The prose says, 
we get a good look at the person lying in the hostel bed and realize it's not who we expect. Now, I asked myself, who was I supposed to be expecting? Because on one hand, Angelica just got shot in this dream sequence. I would expect her to wake up in the hospital room, but she wasn't a patient. She was just there visiting. On the flip side, maybe I guess I'm expecting to see her daughter there, but then she wasn't shot. We're introduced to this third character, who's the husband character. It's a lot of elements. It's a lot of maneuvering to get to the point instead of just saying we are seeing the husband in a hostel bed. Right. Uh, and, I, and I see what the writer's trying to do with audience expectations, but you have to set them up so clearly that they can't think it would be anything else if you're going to keep right. turning the expectation key over and over again. In this example, it would be heightening the fact that the daughter was injured or or gravely ill, or somehow needed to be in a hostile bed right before this moment, uh, which isn't the case. But with all that said, what makes us want to read on versus not? Well, I mean, like we've said, there is a lot in here, and that's not always a bad thing. I think there's a lot of interesting things happening, and a lot of elements that are going to be at play in the pilot and at the series at large that I'm, I'm curious to see where they go. Even picking up the phone at the end is like, who's she calling? Is this a, a fixer who's going to come and help? Is it, you know, that kind of thing. So there's definitely enough mystery in there even if some of it's interspersed with confusion there's enough mystery that makes me curious to read on but what i really want to see from this is for it to pair it back a little bit and try to engage with the emotion and the reality of what's happening rather than trying to make the artifice of the story and the twists and turns keep punching the audience you know just let it sit for a minute and sit with like the horror of my daughter's been in a school shooting what's this character feeling and play that out rather than then immediately turning around again and saying something else is happening. I completely agree. I feel like the teaser would be much more effective if it were more restrained to that speech from the superintendent over the daughter reeling from the shooting and the SWAT team intervening and then having that mother-daughter scene, uh, which I do want to see, you know, even if it's just, well, hopefully it's not a dream sequence, but I do want to see the legit scene between the mother and the daughter after a school shooting. I mean, that's amazing, not in a fun way, but like it's actually cathartic, it's actually emotional, it's powerful, and apparently, you know, the daughter is being accused of being in on it. All that stuff is really juicy, meaty character stuff that I want to see in a teaser and that's an impactful way of starting the show, uh, as opposed to just doing multiple time cuts and intercuts between all these different scenes and characters that we're not quite sure how they all fit together. All right. And our next paper tea submission is called Mediocre by Chris Thomas, and it's a comedy. So in the summary, Tony interviews for a job selling real estate, and despite having no experience, he gets it. Back at home, he tells his wife about it, who is kind of dismayed with his new career direction. The next day, Tony walks into the office right as the real estate bubble bursts and finds it in utter chaos. Documents are on fire, people are running into walls, and his boss leaps out of a window to his death. Interesting first day for Tony. Uh, <laughs> what did you think about this one, Alex? I thought it was fine. The time cuts with the montage of the Martin crashing is funny in juxtaposition to what is happening. However, uh, from a time scale perspective, it was a bit confusing to see him being interviewed and then back at the home and then the market is suddenly crashing and then he's back at work the next day. And this whole thing unfolded without him being aware of any of it. I know it's for the comedy of it, but maybe it's my drama brain <laughs> working overtime. Right. There is a bit crammed in there, I guess. You know, he could have started it at a later position after 
after he already had taken the job and he's walking in his first day or something like that. It's trying to introduce a lot at once. Yeah. However, you know, I did think it was funny. I, I liked that juxtaposition. I liked particularly the heightening of the ridiculous situation at the end when he walks in and the stuff on fire and the guy's jumping out the window. I think that's a really hilarious scene. Um, it's kind of that scene in the community where uh, Don Glover comes back with a pizza. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's a fun thing to build to and to end your, your teaser on what I felt could have been done better in that was a stronger button on the end of it. He basically, Tony just says, oh my God, which is a sort of like a standard reaction to something and it's not an inherently funny line. So you want to find something that's really strong to kind of punch us into the rest of the thing and make us, you know, twist and turn the situation in such a way with the comedy that we're like, oh, that's really funny and this, uh, oh, I, I like what you've done there rather than just kind of being like, here's the situation and the character is reacting passively to what we want to invest the character in that scene comedically. Right, and I think that could be what I was reacting to was just the sense of the lack of uh, concept in that sense because I, I get the situation and what is happening, but you could start it off a little bit later and have him deal with what is going on in front of him instead of ending in that moment. Now, with all that said, I think the humor is there. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, comedy and uh, ridiculousness in the situations, but I think it could also be heightened. Like the montage with the market crashing, what led to my initial confusion was just the idea that wouldn't he be aware of the market collapsing in that moment? And why would he be surprised when he got back to work as opposed to just seeing it in a sort of like a shorter montage and we get to sort of live in that moment uh, with a character? Right. Yeah. I think there is always some element of suspension of disbelief there, especially for the sake of comedy, but I understand what you're saying. I think for me, getting on to the what would make us want to read on here part, I think that there needs to be a stronger thread through to the rest of the pilot. So we end in this ridiculous situation where everything's crashing. But to me, that's sort of like a stopping point. That's That could end a short film or something like that. We build up to this guy getting his job in real estate. And he's really excited. He walks in, the market crashes, the end. You know. So what is it that is leading us through into the rest of the pilot? And what is the momentum of this story? Where does it go from here? Does he have to try to sell real estate in a terrible market? Or does he pick up his life and change direction once again? Like where are we going with all this? And that would make me more inclined to want to read on and see where that goes. All right. Well, that wraps up our paper tease session for this week. Now on to the show. Let's get down to it and discuss writing samples and other TV writing news from the past month. And to do that, we've brought in two very special guests. Some TV writers, we have Kai Wu, who recently created an international series for Netflix, has several shows in development, and most recently staffed on ABC's Deception. And we also have Liz Alpert, co-producer, part of a writing team, currently writing on ABC's hit show, The Rookie. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, How are you guys doing? Good. I'm so tired from this break. <laughs> from this, oh, the Christmas yeah, break. from Christmas. Oh, okay. I need a break. I need, you need a break one. from I the need break. another one. Yeah. <laughs> a but break within the break. Well, yes, please. Breakception. Yeah. <laughs> but you're starting on Monday, right? The, the yeah, yeah we're, we're back on Monday. Wow. One of the main reasons why we brought you guys on was to talk about the hot button issue of writing samples. And to get things set up for our listeners, about a month ago, back in the year 2018, this was a long time <laughs> so ago. Long ago. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was a Twitter thread by screenwriter Daniel Kunka giving his advice on the best kind of spec to write in 2019 if you're trying to break in and get staffed. And we'll link the full thread in the show notes, but essentially his advice boiled down to do not write a TV pilot to break into the business 
business in 2019. And there was a lot of talk about it online, including with Kai and Liz, who had different thoughts on the matter. Mm -hmm. And so we thought we'd bring them on a podcast together, hand them a weapon of their choosing, <laughs> and uh, see who lives, who dies, who tells a story. <laughs> we're basically Tinner Turner in, uh, in Thunderdome. That's right. what we're doing. <laughs> so yeah, what were your thoughts on the idea of, in 2019, writing a feature versus a pilot as a spec sample? I mean, I, I was on the side of disagreeing with that concept. Um, I don't know Daniel, and I always hate telling people, don't take this advice. I think you should just take everyone's advice because there's just no sure way to making it as a TV writer. My my gut instinct, and this is why I texted you, is that to focus on writing features means that you're not focusing on how to write television. Mm. And also being someone who was an assistant for a showrunner where we were staffing, you get hundreds of people who are staffing for maybe two or three slots. And everyone's sending in a script, which also means that someone has to read all those scripts. With a lot of these pilots, you have to try and grab someone within the first 10 pages. That's limiting when you're writing a movie. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think a lot of my favorite movies are slow burns. And I mean, if you look at Call Me By Your Name. If you look at Carol, you know. <laughs> the best movie of yeah, all time. Exactly. Using, <laughs> I'm, I'm using your Achilles heel right now. <laughs> you just don't get hit with a lot of action up front. It, it really requires you to read and watch the entire way through. When you have to read hundreds of scripts, you can't really dedicate a lot of time to a 120-page film that someone would have written mm -hmm as their writing sample instead of a pilot to try and stand out, I would give that 20 pages. And if it hasn't hooked my attention, I have to move on to the other samples. Right. And so in my opinion, I don't think you should, I'm not saying don't write films. I'm saying write films in addition to pilots, not mm -hmm. instead of. So that's my argument. Mm -hmm. Right. That is my argument that I put so succinctly. That's great. Are, no. you, are you proud of me? I am so proud. Yay. And what's weird about this is I actually agree with you 100%. Oh, yes. And the the thing about Dan, I don't just disclaimer, I do know Dan. Um, when I read his thread, the mm -hmm. thing I, I, I was, he was targeting a very specific thing. So I think sure. for when I read it, I took it as how do you break in if you're not an established writer? So not even where you are, where yeah. we are, or anyone, yeah. right? And for me, having just gone through pitching shows, development, and we've, you know, staffing for the last couple of years, mm -hmm. I agree with him in that, like, TV is incredibly difficult. There used to be a, a way of thinking of, like, oh, feature is so hard. I'll just go into TV. And, you know, like, feature writers thinking, like, I'll sell a pilot, whatever, blah, blah. Yeah. That is not the case anymore. Like, my reps literally said it's harder to see. They're like, don't write the spec script. Just yeah. do, the, do the pitch. And even if you sell a pitch, usually there are huge attachments to it to try to sell it. So if you're a new person coming in, you might not have access to those new attachments. You don't have the Greg Berlantis of the world to help you sell the show. So then, okay, great. Then you write a pilot for staffing. Mm -hmm. And I came up the same way as Liz. I was an assistant and read all those samples to see getting staffed. It is so hard nowadays. I think it's it's, it's a small miracle. So... Then it's like, okay, staffing process is not easy too. So you write a pilot, are you going to get staffed? I'm not sure like what the odds are because most lower level writers are from the programs. So, and those programs do specs and pilots, right? So then I, then I'm, then I'm thinking like, okay, great. So if you just have, yes, you should write everything. Mm -hmm. But if, if time constraints, like you, which one are you writing first? The very targeted thing is to me, it makes sense to write a feature because 
in this day and age, I think you, you can still sell a feature spec without huge attachments because you can, studios can buy it. They can just buy your concept and have someone rewrite you or go on the blacklist. I think TV is a very involved process and mm-hmm. it, you do need years of like breaking in, working our way up to do something. Now, of course, there are we have, we all have friends who just sold something right away, and yeah. I think that happens in any Su Chung. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that happens all the time. But I think statistically speaking, and Dan said it in his thread, he's not that happens. He's not looking for that one percent. He's he's gonna go with a path with the best odds statistically, and that's where I agreed with him on it. Right. So I think we're yeah. saying the same thing. Actually, is just I even narrowed down his. Yeah, because I think when I when I read it, for me, the interpretation that I took away, and this is putting words in his mouth, mm-hmm. which is totally unfair. When I read it, it was very much a focus on going the 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 movie route first before coming back to the television route, and that struck me as a little odd because if you're going to be a TV, TV writer, right. right, be a TV yeah. writer. Right. And I kind I kind of think I know what you're saying, where it's like if you're just trying to get attention, period. Yeah write a feature and the way I took it was if you want to get staffed write a feature right and that, right. yeah and that, that's where I agree yeah with, like, which is 100%. also yeah that's... which is also why we were both like oh, we should probably stop talking on Twitter yeah. we're actual friends we could probably talk <laughs> in person yeah, yeah exactly. so unless you're on a podcast yeah <laughs> so podcast. Podcast. they tried to split us up they tried to turn us against <laughs> each other <laughs> it's like Thunderdome yeah so. yeah, yeah that's, that's we women point. don't break sirs yeah <laughs> I think that's a really good point though those are two very different things getting staffed versus just getting attention and breaking in and getting noticed because it is quite often that you see someone writes a great feature and they're from Australia or is it anywhere in the world, some yeah. little town in, in the US and they get on the hit list or the blacklist or whatever it happens to be and then suddenly people know them around town and they're taking meetings whereas I guess it's a little less common to be able to write a TV pilot and suddenly a studio wants to buy it from a completely unknown writer because you, you need that experience. Yeah. Right. The, yeah, there's no real equivalent to the blacklist for TV pilots as it stands in terms of uh, some kind of venue that propels pilots from unknown writers to the level that a spec feature would. Uh, That said, I feel like a pilot as a sample and as an exercise more so than prop to be sold uh, can be valuable for staffing, especially because unlike a feature writer, as Liz pointed out earlier, I feel like it does show the craft of writing an episode, which is very different from writing a feature, just in terms of a page number, but yeah. also in terms of a narrative, uh, the concept of act breaks and act outs and pacing. characters and yeah. pacing, teasers. So from that level, what are your thoughts on a pilot as a sample? I, I think it's great. I mean, I've only ever written pilots as samples. I never had to write spec TV episodes. Um, thank goodness, because I'm horrible mm-hmm. at them. But um, so, yeah, I get it. And I definitely, that's the number one choice when I'm reading. And so I think everything Liz said about the page count is true for um, features. Personally, though, if a feature lands on my desk, I will give it that, like, 20 page and see if it hooks me. If it doesn't, just the same with the pilot, it just, it won't. But I'm also someone, I don't mind reading short stories as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't mind the non-traditional forms. But I think if you do want to focus on TV, and that is the number one thing, I think write like two or two or three pilots, two, two yeah. different kinds of shows. If only to, I, I I completely agree with you. I think going non traditional is great. 
if you also have a play. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know yes. what I mean? Like, if, if, if you're sitting there going, hey, I have this play, read this play, and I like the play. Can I read something else? Can I read whatever pilot or even TV spec? Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, I'm going, give me, like, I had to write specs for television because I did all, I applied to all the fellowships. Oh, I got rejected you, by all of them. So I did okay. too. Yes. Yeah, there we go. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're, we're actually, it's very nice that we are two people who succeeded without, without the, having to go through, yeah. We're two diverse writers who succeeded without those programs. Yes, that's it happens. Oh my, it happens. Yes, guys. So the programs um, are not in on be all. Yeah, but I think you and I both have horror stories, and we know that a lot of our other writer friends have horror stories of playwrights or film writers who get staffed on a show having never written television before, not understanding that's a completely different beast. Not in terms of you know, format and dialogue and storycraft, but also just the collaboration, the collaboration and the brutal pace. You know, it's one thing to write a film in your own time. It's another to say, Hey, we're behind and you now only have eight days to write your script. And if you haven't watched every single episode and you don't know what's going on and you don't understand the voices and the characters and the stories and how it's a continuation of an already ongoing saga, mm-hmm. it just becomes a huge mess. It's a, it's a cluster beep yes. that did you, there you, that's my <laughs> there gift to you guys. That is my gift. Um, the only thing it's I'll a say, cluster beef. The only thing I'll say in your statement, you said we're behind. We have eight days. I'm like eight I days. Mean, that, that is I'm a like, long I'm time. Like, what is this? I'm yeah, like, yeah, you, eight like days. you have 48 hours. To 40, turn this yeah, around. that has. We had the the quickest that we ever had on our turnaround. I think for. A show that will not go named is we wrote a script, got back from break, had the episode before us get completely blown up with changed everything in ours, including, you know, the characters who were going to be featured in it. So as staff, I think it was we were story editors at the time. We had to recraft and rebreak and redo an entire story in five days, five to six days. And then they didn't like it. So they wanted basically a page one rewrite in 48 hours, and then they didn't like that either. We had to write. It was a nightmare. It was awful. So, and this is all to say, like, that's why a lot of inexperienced writers, it is so tough in TV, not because there's tough for tough sake. It's like that kind of train, that kind of like you have to get used to writing at that pace. You have to get used to turning around in the 48 hours. And if you're, if you don't have that training then it's a little bit, okay, you're going to be left behind. And that is yeah. why there is yeah. that big wall around TV. It's yeah. much harder to produce uh, 90 pages of content in a week as opposed to yes. you know, half of that. But there's also in TV the writer's room aspect of it yeah. all where it's very communal and very social in that sense as yeah. opposed yeah. to a feature writer who is more akin to a novelist mm-hmm. in, in the way that you know they write from home usually and they're going to stay in their little cavern mm-hmm. for six months until they <laughs> drop that feature. But to go back to the sample of it all, one of the the comments on the Twitter thread was about this idea that uh, TV is very popular. Everybody now since 2013 or whatever the date was uh, is jumping on TV. But what are your thoughts on chasing trends as a writer in terms of uh, should you be trying to write a specific thing to go towards the trend or against the trend? What are your thoughts on that? Your agents are going to make you. So... <laughs> I'm only half joking when I say your reps are going to make you (laughs) look at the trends and what's getting sold because there's a habit right now of writing something that can get sold Mm -hmm. as opposed to writing something that fulfills you creatively. So I think it's, it's not a bad trend if you want to. 
when The Walking Dead was a hit, I love sci-fi and high concept, so I was more than happy to write a zombie spec. But with The Handmaid's Tale being a thing, and everyone saying, well, let's write this dark, dystopic sort of nightmare based in a very near future. It's not exactly everybody's cup of tea. I think I think what's better is that there are so many platforms right now where so many different things are being promoted that you can write what you want to write and figure out what platform it would work best on. Yeah. And I think for yeah, for like development, but for shows you want to staff, and I'm going through this right now actually, which yeah. is look at the shows that you want to be on. And I don't believe that you have to write a copycat of it, but, you know, like write something tonally, you know, atmospherically similar to it. So I'm a big horror fan. I started in horror. And unfortunately, I do not have a true horror TV sample, have them features. So it's a little tough. For, it actually, and I just cannot believe I'm like, oh, my God, horror shows. I, and then I realized, <laughs> you know what, I just need to write a horror sample. But with that said, if it doesn't get me on any show, if it doesn't sell it's fine because that is a genre that I love and yeah. I'm going to write those anyway. It's more about like your staffing, look at the shows you want to be on and then write something like that. If you're chasing a trend just because, oh, cool, like feminist women, right? And I'm like, you hate it. You can, it always shows on the page anyway. Yeah. So. That's yeah. a much better piece of advice than mine. <laughs> I, I would go with that answer. What do you mean? Well, well, just, just, well mine, yes, yes, because I'm always right. But <laughs> you, you are more right, but... I it's think true. It's, true. It, it's smart because if you are someone who loves This Is Us and all you have is your Law & Order SVU spec to submit for staffing, there's no way you're getting a foot yeah. in that door. Yeah, <laughs> and it does feel like sometimes with that kind of advice, people think that they can try and game the system in some way. They're like, oh, I'm going to hit the exact right type of thing that everyone wants to buy right now. And just because I have that, I'm going to get staffed or I'm going to sell it and that kind of thing. But it still needs to be good, especially if there's a lot of that going around at the time, yeah. right? yeah. And also, like, a lot of those trends are cyclical. A lot of people, every five years, we hear drama series are dead or comedies are dead. At the end of the day, it's going to be about what you're passionate about and what you're interested in. As Kai said, the kind of rooms and kind of shows that you want to be in and create that sample that allows you. I will also say, though, just to interject, because in this, I completely forgot about this, but the first pilot that Ali and I ever wrote was a high concept take on Treasure Island mm-hmm. that mixed features of you know tron and national treasure and was this big kind of very high action chase thriller sort of thing and our first job was chicago fire where they were like oh we're we're doing this soap opera about firefighters this is the perfect script these guys need to write on this show and ali and i to this day are just like okay yeah, yeah. i mean so it's it's i was just thinking when you were saying that alex because we did write something that had no business being in the Dick Wolf right. camp and immediately got hired on the Dick Wolf camp. And then the next year went to Hawaii Five-0 on the same sample. There's no rhyme or reason. Yes. I would still argue that yeah. your, the sample that you mentioned still has some action to it, still has a reason in terms of what you're bringing in the writer's room because yeah. you know, a writer's room is comprised of hopefully not the same 10 people. It's comprised mm-hmm. of people with different assets, be it character, genre, whatever it is. To right. your credit, yeah. do you feel like you brought something uh, unique in that, in yeah. that aspect? Yeah, I just, I just want to know when they looked at it and they were like, they're digitizing humans into, you know, <laughs> well, that ones happened. and zeros. Well, that happened to me too. I mean, I was on yeah. The flash I, my sample is a period piece 1890s 
horror. Not horror. It's like a mystery. Mm-hmm. It's pretty dark. And the flash is really light. So I, that was the one like, what? So yeah. these things do, ha- but I always just say like, I wrote the sample I want to write because I was passionate about it. And hopefully yeah, when we both got staffed, the showrunners read something about that. It was ourselves. It's like, there's something here that the girls are doing that yeah. we want to bring to the room. Yeah. It may not be one on, one-to-one Chicago yeah. Fire or Flash. Right. But, flash but. but it's like, I think that pa- that's why better. that passion carries you know a lot absolutely right and it's not just the pilot as a whole it might be that you're doing characters really well in your piece or you're doing dialogue or you have great ideas and that's what they want from you in the room you don't have to be able to write every single aspect of the show as well as the showrunner you just have to be good at one particular thing that they need in the room right i think that's one reason why the spec going away is actually a real shame and i understand it because there are so many shows out there it's so hard to keep up with all of them and you can get a spec on a show that you've never seen before and you read it and you go, Oh, I don't, I'm sure it's, yeah, it's funny. I'm sure that's what they're going for. (laughs) But that was such a good way to see if someone could encapsulate someone else's voice. Mm -hmm. And that's the big issue that I think a lot of younger writers are facing right now is every time they go into the room, they've written a pilot that got them into the room. They had a great spec. That doesn't necessarily mean they know how to capture someone else's voice. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming in to do their version of the showrunner's vision, not the showrunner's vision. And that's a really hard thing that you to judge off of just a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And this is something that Nick has heard me saying over and over again. I'm a big proponent of specs because I would argue that it's the closest thing to being a staff writer in terms of an exercise you can do for yourself to imitate what it's like to being a staff writer as opposed to a pilot that is, like you said, akin to being a showrunner because you're creating your own vision. Whereas in a staff writer, you're going to be generating story after story based on someone else's IP uh, in a a way. Absolutely. I think... Just to commandeer this conversation a little Please. bit, just the idea that if you sit down and you're you're not planning on using a spec for your staffing sample, totally fine. What that forces you to do is watch a show, examine it, look at the act breaks, look at the way the characters talk, read a bunch of scripts to try and study how you know these writers break story, like what the format is, how the story unfolds from act to act. And that's the closest practice you can get being a staff writer, because that's what you do. When we got staffed on Hawaii Five-0, we had to watch eight seasons of comprised of 25 episodes each of Hawaii Five-0 to get the voices, to understand the stories, to see where the twists and turns came. And so it's it's research. It's, yeah, it's I, not a waste of time. I... As someone who doesn't like specs, I they're, know. They're very, <laughs> I hate them. I hate them. It's just because it's my own shortcomings. It's very valuable, but as you're going through the research, I just went through all the shows in my head. I've only ever worked on season one shows in my oh. head. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, wait, how come I never? I was like, oh yeah, every single show. Yeah. So there was a, and I think that's probably why this. I mean, I would do it for the research, yeah. but it was kind of like the it hasn't been set in stone. So yeah, I think that's the difference because we were staffed on. Uh, Chicago Fire seasons four and five. Oh wow! Pretty yeah, that four late. and five. It was oh, that wow. late, and then Hawaii Five O season eight. Oh my god! So oh, wow. we came in when everything had already been, been established. established, and the characters had legs, and you couldn't really come in and introduce anything new. You just had to work within the confines, hmm. and yeah. that's that's so difficult to do if you've never done it before. Yeah. You know, you you come in, it's not fan fiction. You can't sit there and go like, I want to see Casey and Severide run off into the sunset together <laughs> because we've pitched that to Dick Wolf. Right, and right. he said no, like so many times, and it's not fair. But 
it's it's something that a lot of new writers get bogged down with. Right. There's a difference between wish fulfillment and yeah. something that the narrative of the characters need and wants. Yes. And fits within the showrunner's vision. Yeah. That's the big yeah. thing is it always comes back to what does the showrunner yes. want? Because if the showrunner doesn't want it, guess what's not happening? Yeah. Absolutely. And for our listeners, as, a, as an outsider, how do you do that research into the show besides just, you know, sitting on your couch and uh, binging uh, Netflix? Call Jimmy Wynn and ask for all the scripts of that <laughs> season. No. That's actually exactly what you do, is you sit down on your couch and you binge every episode of that season, but also get your hands on your favorite episodes. So that's what I would do whenever I would write a spec, is watch the season, hear the voices, but then get the scripts of my favorite episodes and read how you know the seeds were placed. Like I am, this isn't television, but for movies... The Cornetto trilogy, hot fuzz. The, you know, you you shush. This is my Carol. This yes. is my Carol. I'll let you have a moment. Yeah. Um, the World's End is by and far my favorite movie of all time, and I've read that script so many times to see how everything was plotted out. And to do something like that, you're going to get the sense of the writer's canter, and it's going to be something that comes more naturally rather than just taking a crack on it totally uninformed. Have you seen, uh, I think it's Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg breaking down Hot Fuzz or the writing of it all? No, and I need to see that. Right, I'll send you the link. Where can I find can that? Can you send me two? Yeah, it's on, it's on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. A sure. friend of mine for my birthday just gave me a signed copy of Hot Fuzz by Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. And I cried like, <laughs> after after everyone was gone. I just held it in my arms for you a very long time. You slept with it. It's it's still in my bed. It's, it's my bed. yeah. It's, it's, it's the right there. Yeah. <laughs> Alex will tell you a in. funny story off mic later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great advice. I also watch uh, the worst episodes because it's always interesting to see, especially for the fans, what didn't really work outside of the clip show, obviously. But it's interesting to look at the oddities because I don't feel like a season premiere or a season finale really represented the show because they're there to set things up or pay things off mm -hmm. as opposed to just a random episode in the middle of a show, assuming it is obviously like a more procedural show. Yeah. That's great advice. All right, so taking it back to the idea of preparing for staffing and trying to get yourself staffed, whether you are a newer writer or a working writer who's kind of trying to find their next thing, how do you individually kind of prepare for the year ahead? Like it's January now. What are you doing to make sure you're ready for this staffing season? Sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm writing that pilot, <laughs> that <laughs> horror pilot. Uh, I think for specific shows that are coming up, then I think knowing like what you like and then like there are 500 shows. There are so many samples. How do you make it different? Like the biggest compliment someone once said to me was they read a script and they said, this feels like a Kai Wu script. And I was like, oh my God. And that person was correct. Because when I read, I'm like, oh, this is... <laughs> this, is what I would, this is what I would do in this story topic. Like, so, so I, and, and in my head, I didn't even know that there was like a, a topic or a theme that I keep gravitating towards yeah. until that person said it. I was like, oh. So I feel like knowing yourself, knowing what, like, you can write a police procedural, fine. But like, what do you bring to it that like Dick Wolf hasn't, that like all the other showrunners hasn't? And I think that's going to help you stand out. And I, I watch a lot of movies and TV shows. Yeah. That's, I think that's what is the best advice because what I do to prepare is eat a lot of pizza and <laughs> just for the year ahead. Yes. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just stock up on my the responsibilities. Yes. 
Um, Cardboard load for pilot season. I know. <laughs> I think I think that's that's the hard part, especially when you're a working writer. Is at this point, this is also because you have worked for the most part on shorter episode ordered. Sh- yeah, with the shows. exception of Flash, I've really been on thirteen episode shows. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so I've been on. My career has been twenty three episodes, twenty two, twenty five, and <sighs> the rookie is twenty episodes. Oh so yeah. Allie and I were burned out yeah. every time. And also Rock you're came. and also you're on a show now too. So I think yeah. the difference where I'm I'm not on a show, I have yeah. a little more luxury. Yes. Well if every yeah. one of the, the paper team listeners tune in to watch the rookie, I'll have a show next <laughs> right, year too. True. And that'll this be great. Um, when is it airing? Go to get oh, Tuesdays at ten PM. It's no big deal on ABC. Uh, <laughs> That is a good question, though. Yeah. Uh, being on a show, are you still doing? Are you still working on your own material outside of that? Do you have the time, the energy, the bandwidth to do that? Is it something you should be doing, but you're not? Or <laughs> yeah, it should be doing and am not is a very good way of putting it. I, <laughs> I am currently banding about pilot ideas with my manager because I do want to write something a little different for next season, and if God forbid. The Rookie, for some reason, ABC's hit show does not return for a second season. I am going to be going out for staffing season, and it's going to be a pain. It's going to be a pain in the butt. What do you feel the difference is in terms of the amount of work you should be putting into the show you're on, obviously? Probably the majority, but how much of that as opposed to working on your own project on your own time? I will say something very quickly because I think you have something to say. You look like you. Okay, yeah. My friend Manel who is wonderful and an agent who is not my agent, but is just brilliant, has always told me, while you're on a show, you are not obligated to write anything. Your focus is keeping your job on that show. The moment you're done, you have no more excuses. So right now I know that once we wrap, my obligation is to take a little breather and then start writing again. So that's the plan. That's the thing that I recommend to all writers. I think on a lot of different shows, towards the end of the season, you start to have a little bit more downtime. And when things start wrapping up and you're still there and it's not as intense as it is during the the first breaking the first 13, that's a good time to start plotting out an idea. So you can start writing either towards the the beginning of your hiatus or somewhere in the middle, depending on if you want to, I don't know, travel, sleep, whatever people do with lives. Travel and And sleep. See (laughs) see your family, maybe. Look, if you're on staff, I think everyone will agree, like they're paying you. So you're, that Mm -hmm. is your job. And to be a professional, you should give it your all. And if you have time after work, like if you're not on script and you have the bandwidth, Sure, you know, but that's on you, right? Yeah. Like, um, with that said, I will say, um, if you're it's, if you're unhappy on the show you're on and you don't plan to return or for whatever reason, that probably is the one time I would say, you know what, maybe get your sample ready because if you don't think you'll return to the show, yeah. you're going to go for a new show anyway. And I actually find that that's a great motivator. I'm like, yeah. get me off the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need a new sample. Yeah. Uh, and then your productivity goes up. And uh, how do you stay productive when you're not on staff? Do you have a routine? Uh, What's your schedule like? Oh, I have a writing partner. And that's really productive because if I don't write, she doesn't get paid. And (laughs) that's a big thing to have hanging over my head. And that that was one of the reasons why we paired up because we're both lazy. Mm -hmm. And we'd much rather watch Netflix or go to Disneyland than actually sit down and write. 
even though we both love it. And quite frankly, when we have someone else who is helping us get through the roadblocks so that we're not using it as an excuse to go procrastinate, it makes things go much faster. But also knowing that I am responsible for her financial security and vice versa, it's a really good motivator. <laughs> I also have rent to pay. So. <laughs> no, I, uh, I think like I took this year, I didn't really staff except for doing my own room for the Netflix show. So this was the, actually the first time where I, you know, um, just had a, a free time to kind of manage. And it is tricky. It is the turnaround. You're like, wait, how is it March already? But luckily I work really well with the deadline, meaning like I will start writing if someone gives me a deadline. So I will now give myself a deadline and to meet that, like my back has to be against the wall a little bit. So if you're that type of person, give yourself a deadline, have someone to hold you to it. And and I'm someone who loves like doing multiple projects anyway. So it's kind of like, for me, it's like freedom. I'll do one, I'll write something, a script, or maybe I'll, and then I'll do one with like the beginning stages. So I'm not writing constantly. I'm maybe brainstorming one afternoon. And then that morning I'm writing, revising a script. And next day I'm jumping to something, depending on how many stories. So you stay fresh in that way. Yeah. So if I write a script, like, you know, look at it for like five months, I, I will, I can't see it clearly anymore. So I try to just give it some time. Yeah. I think one of the best pieces of advice I've gleaned from, interviews with other writers. Lin-Manuel Miranda was talking about writing Hamilton. Mm. And his the only way he was able to finish writing Hamilton is when he wasn't working on that, he would replace it with other work. So instead of working on Hamilton and then saying, I'm going to play on my Xbox for two hours, he would walk the dog. He would clean up. He would finish a rewrite of something that was already in the pipeline. And so even though he wasn't being productive on Hamilton, he was still being yeah. productive. And that kept the wheels in yeah. motion. It does allow that background processing that you sometimes need to yeah. keep moving. Yeah, it's it's tough because there are two different levels where it's getting repped and then getting staffed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And when you're trying to get repped, you need anything like Going back to full circle and going to that Twitter thread, like write the short films, write the pilots, write anything you can to get repped and get interest. But when you're going out for staffing season and you need to be staffed, just have something that you like Mm -hmm. and work on it and take notes. Oh my gosh. Okay. Hold on. Race everything I just said. Please. (laughs) The one thing I want to say, I know. Well, the one thing I want to say is if you're going to have people that you trust who are working writers or someone else that you admire, take the time to read your script and give you notes. Ponder the notes. Please ponder the notes. There are so many young writers who write the first draft of a pilot and then go, no, it's done. Yeah. And whenever it's being read and many readers or or even just a few will come and say, hey, this is great. Here are some things you might want to look at. When the writer is going, no, it's perfect. I don't need to take these notes. That's a problem because when you get on staff, you're going to learn that 90% of the job is rewriting. Absolutely. And also to that, to Liz's point, it's a matter of like, if you think it's perfect, then you don't need someone to read it. Then don't like it. Because when we read things for people 
it's a favor and it takes a lot of time, especially to give uh, yeah. thoughtful notes. So when, you know, we, I think we all know people sometimes like, you know, we give notes are great. And then, you know, they'll send it back and nothing's changed. In my head, it's like, when I have my show, you obviously don't take notes immediately. Like, why would I hire? Like all these things yeah. that like people don't understand. It, it's, it's almost sort of like a pre-interview because in our heads, we're all mm-hmm. cack putting together like who, which, who do we like? Who do we get along with? Who's writing? We love who's great at coming up with ideas. So when you do that, inevitably it hurts you as well because yeah. now that you know like you're the you're the people who don't take notes <laughs> yeah. yeah it's also they don't understand the not necessarily the fix but the note behind the note essentially that there's a reason why you're having the note yeah. and even though you may not agree with the way they're pitching the fix yeah. the problem still exists in yeah. some capacity yeah. and I, I have a rule where like i don't have just one person read i always have at least two if one person gives it once then i go okay it's in my head maybe a second note, second that comes up, it has to be changed. Something is whether, yeah. re- like Alex said, this correct fix or something inherent in there. But yeah, I think yeah. that's a great. Yeah, I think so. I, I have a rule of I'll send it to no more than six of my really good friends whose voices I trust. Because the moment you start sending it out to dozens of people, you get you get too many cooks. Yeah. And you have people with different sensibilities who are weighing in. So I just... I send it to the people I trust, whose sensibilities I trust, and who are way smarter than I am. And whenever they they give me notes, if there's a lot of overlap, I mean, that's a warning. I actually do. This is just my process sending out. I actually yeah. send out to not like two or three. Yeah. Because I do in tiers. Because I want right. everyone to have a fresh read. So then two or three, and then next level, two and three. Oh. So... Yeah, so this is just, again, rewriting. Like, I rewrite so much. I'm yeah. sure we all do. Yeah. So then, because then the, the brand new people who's never read it, I'm like, is the same note coming up? Because then if it's not, then I know I fixed the bump. All right, so on these episodes, we tend to like to cover recent TV news and have a little discussion about that. If you guys would like to weigh in on, on some of the recent happenings around town. Hot takes. Yeah. <laughs> so one of them, uh, which is pretty concerning, is that there was a lot of news coming out about a showrunner creator who on Showtime, on the show Smilf, who was apparently uh, mistreating her actors and even writers. I don't know if you heard about this. No. Uh, yeah, I heard about show. this. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was kind of... So essentially, I, I believe what was said in, in the trades was that particularly with nude scenes and simulated sex scenes and things like that, she wasn't respecting people's privacy around that and leaving the monitors on for the crew when they asked for it not to be on. I think one of the actors even had a, something in her contract saying she didn't want to do it and they she kind of forced her to like override that and like confronted yeah. her in a trailer about it, all this kind of thing and, and multiple times in different things. And then also there was some news as well about her certain practices in the writer's room where she would apparently split up writers by race into different mm. subrooms or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess so just that's obviously pretty shocking and terrible. But what do you do you know, as a writer when there are problematic people in that creative process, whether they're showrunners or producers or writers or actors? You know, how, do, how does this kind of affect you and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, we've worked for a couple of very difficult showrunners where we've kept our head down and I I think I've spoken out a little bit more than I should have in certain situations. I think it's tough because in those situations, you know, every time you speak up, you are risking your job and you are saying something that seems like common sense, whether it's a, Hey, maybe don't say this about women 
or, hey, maybe that's a terrible attitude to have about this you know, Me Too movement that's happening in the news right now. Anything that you say can be used against you. And we're still not out of this phase right now where you can be painted as difficult mm-hmm. or problematic or someone who doesn't gel with the room. Especially when you're a young writer, you have to keep that in mind. And that stinks. That's awful. But you find allies on your staff and you go to them and you have your support system. Those are the people that you go and you confide in and you make sure you don't let what is said behind closed doors leak out. So Allie and I are very lucky because we have each other. So when we've faced a bunch of sexist and um, race issues before, we're I'm half Asian and Allie is Korean. It's real crappy and we have each other to lean on. We've been lucky enough to have at least one person on the staff for the difficult shows that we've been able to turn to and say, this is what happened. We're really upset. We know nothing can be done. Can we just come in and vent and have this be a space where we feel safe in? And the answer has always been yes. So find those people, find your allies, call your friends at the end of the night and talk about it. Everyone has a story. Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially when you're a lower level. Yeah. I think the good thing is, I believe, hopefully it's here to stay, the Me Too movement, right? Like, if you are, I would say, if you're a high-level person, you're an e- another EP, you're another co-EP who has that great reputation, if something is really, really bad and there are people coming to you, I think, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, like, I don't want to, mm-hmm. it's just like, is it? I'm hoping that, like, with the time now, like, they can go to HR or whoever together to say this is a real problem. I agree with Liz. If you're a staff writer, unfortunately, you, it's just, I've, you know, you, it's very, very difficult. Cause I've also been on those shows. And like uh, Liz, I was lucky that I've had friends on other shows that we all came together and commiserated and, you know, um, asked for support. But I would say, you know, the problematic showrunners, they may not be ousted while you're there, but they, at some point, if that continue mm-hmm. behavior continues, they will be ousted at you know later. So yeah. I think with more people empowering the non-abusive behaviors, you know, on shows. Yeah, because I think also I've called you before. Going, yes. this showrunner said this. Fork that. Fork that. Yeah, I'm furious. And you've always been the one that's that said vent right now so that you get it out of your system and you can go back in tomorrow and just keep your head down. Yeah, keep your head down. And then, and yeah, and then I think if you are upper level, I'm hoping, again, I'm not, I've never done it, so I don't want to tell anyone, but like, I think has been changing and, you know, just seeing the amount of abusive showrunners who's been ousted Yeah, and and the time it took has been very, very satisfying. So Yeah, Yeah. apparently one of the main reasons why this was brought up because Disney had an anonymous tip line where you could go and report problems like this. And so enough of that kind of accrued that they wanted to take action about it. So I guess that's an option too for people. Yeah, which is great. And that's also a very specific situation that you're talking about because this is not the first time in the last couple of years that issues surrounding sex scenes and nudity and the way that actors are treated on set during those very delicate times have been raised. There was there was trouble on the set of 
I don't, I don't remember if it was Westworld or Game of Thrones. I think it's Westworld. Is, was it, 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 Westworld? is it the nudity thing? I think The it's nudity Westworld. thing where it became so extreme and what was being asked of the actors was so uncomfortable. Was it the extras? Was it was the extras, yes, yeah. It was, it, was, it was during a couple of orgy scenes that they had to bring in SAG reps. I think what needs to happen is we do need a little bit more monitoring. Yeah. There needs to be some kind of workshop for showrunners to go to where they are taught by SAG representatives, this is what you do, this is your sensitivity training, get with it. And I know that the I know that the WGA has showrunner trainings, yeah. you know, for anyone who is potentially an up-and-coming showrunner, and that should be part of the workshop. Absolutely. And I think there's already changes being made. Uh, maybe it's HBO or another network is creating that position uh, to oversee those scenes. Yeah. So yeah, maybe some good news. coordinators. Oh, right. I read yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's the problem when it comes to nudity is there are plenty of people who find it empowering and have no problem walking on set or talking about sexual acts that they may have done in their private lives or you know, just walking around topless or bottomless for kicks and they're perfectly comfortable in their own skin. You have to respect the people who are not like that. I think that was the issue with this particular situation on Smilf is that you had a showrunner who was also an actress on the show who was very comfortable taking her shirt off and, and acting in all the nude scenes. But then you had an actress who wasn't and her boundaries weren't being respected. Moving on to maybe lighter topics. Uh, We haven't really covered it on the podcast, but I'm curious your thoughts on the new Black Mirror interactive episode, Bendersnatch. I have not watched it. Don't tell me anything. We were talking about this at Bagel Crew. Um, It was, I loved it. And I I watched it like, like a couple days ago, look, you know, you're like, you're like, oh, interactive film. Is it going to be cheesy? Because that idea has been, you know, bandied about for so long. Yeah. But I really thought Netflix did it right. Like, I was like, this is so fun. Um, and we were just saying, like, not to give anything away. I think one of the fears is that, like, if you're repeating the things, right, it'll get boring. But they somehow, even within the same scene, it's tweaked a little different angles, different things and options that might come up that you did wasn't available before. So I actually managed to keep it fresh. I don't know. Me and my friends did like four hours of it. Like one yeah. night, we played it, all the endings. It's interesting because uh, on a technical perspective, I think it's amazing. Like yeah. the way the network is handling the streaming of it. Yeah. Uh, and the like, selecting of the choices and the buffering. There's a couple of Hollywood Reporter articles on the topic that we'll put in the show notes, but uh, it's very fascinating to read about it. From a narrative standpoint, though, uh, I feel like my one bump with, that episode is kind of what I feel is inherent in any game mechanic where you either have on one hand games that are very creator driven like The Last of Us or Bioshock Infinite that sort of put you on this track where you have to do certain things mm-hmm. and that way they can create the narrative and control the narrative yeah. as opposed to maybe a, of a more open world type scenario where there's no real narrative and it's up to the player to create their own story. Now Black Mirror sort of like fit in that middle ground where it's a choose your adventure so you do create your own path but it's hard to create a cathartic storytelling journey for the audience if they pick certain paths so that was my one issue with the the show right. uh, but i don't know if you bumped into the the same problem the i we i'd like we i saw the endings in the one night so yeah. there were some you're right some of the endings were not as satisfying but i just kept playing them until we yeah. got and there was one ending that i think was very very satisfying and very emotional so i would just say for interactive films um just 
a lot more than an hour and a half <laughs> if yeah. you want to if you want to see the difference and was maybe it the train related one Yes. Don't tell yeah, me. That was a good, that, that was right? a good But it took a while. It took yeah. a while for us to yeah. get there. <laughs> no, yeah. Also, enough. it's Black Mirror. You're not watching it for the warm fuzzies. Right. No, totally. Yeah, you're it's watching, like, <laughs> like, you put San Junipero on repeat if you want those <laughs> yeah. feelings, but otherwise, you're watching it because you hate yourself. <laughs> oh my God. And, and you just want to feel even well, then, more depressed a lot of endings, than you are. Right a lot of endings, you will feel that. Okay, way. great. It's like yeah. the Choose Your Own Adventure Goosebumps books. You flip to the page oh, and like, you're dead. And you're like, yeah. oh, yes, I kept my yes. finger on the other page and so now yeah. I'm going to go back. Exactly. <laughs> it's a bit like this. Yeah. And it's like, but you're also dead here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. The, technic- the technical aspect, I just thought, like, as Alex said, I didn't even think too much about it, but the idea mm-hmm. that like you can. How do they? I don't know what Netflix How do they is doing. How do they do yeah. that? From what I read, the the algorithm figures out sort of the different path that you're on, and then they buffer different scenes oh, uh, based on the choices. Ready to get it ready. Yeah, correct. So they don't buffer the whole episode because there's five hours of content. They yeah. can just buffer five hours. Ha! Well, oh, God, I'm a morbid person. My friends weren't, so hopefully we put them for a loop because our choices yeah. were all over the place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also do like that. It's the show's basically like. Do you watch Black Mirror? Yeah. Which ending do you yeah. think you're going right. to you're going to be getting? Also, I think in a hundred years there's going to be a new religion with the algorithm at the head of it <laughs> that we're all going to be the church of. Oh no, Netflix. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. Netflix, as I understand it, they are buying thing is kind of like let's put into our algorithm. Yeah, and you're like, what's this algorithm? What's this? And you know, and that's how they determine oh. how much to pay, what to buy. This is how we're going. Yeah, this is yeah. how we're all going to be matched up in the future is by, like, the, hey, by like, the algorithm. Just like that great episode, Hang the DJ, which I yes. love. as we love Hang Such the DJ. Great. We're all in assimilation. That's a yes. world of women. Yes. <laughs> So speaking of uh, watching things on Netflix, what are you guys currently watching on TV? What are you enjoying? I'm watching Taylor Swift's Reputation on repeat. Um, (laughs) I'm only half joking. I love that because I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. But I just recently finished Haunting of Hill House and I loved the show. Mm -hmm. That's um, I thought it was as a horror fan. Horror is done well, but it's really a truly character piece about a family. So I'm excited and hopefully i can finish halt the catch fire this year mm. oh yeah episode six of uh haunting was oh amazing. yeah is it the one the one take one yeah the one yeah it's i mean that's i'm like if if i could be on shows like that that would be like you know very yeah. fulfilling yeah uh, i'm watching the new ducktales yeah, it's, it's so good. most excellent <laughs> i really enjoy it. yeah i really i really really enjoy it i'm not a fan of reboots or updating pre-existing properties but they've done a really nice job with this one Mm -hmm. i'm just i'm having so much fun watching it and understanding how children are going to be seeing the world 10 years from now and that's great for me i'm also watching this show called lords and ladles which i wish i remembered the twitter user who had this big long thread about it it's basically three irish chefs who go around to british castles and have to recreate meals from the 1800s (laughs) and they just complain about it the entire time and it's amazing it's my favorite thing i love it how does that even come up oh you found it on twitter someone someone on twitter was basically going this is irish chefs and 18th century menus these are all my things i was like those are all my things too (laughs) so i got very excited and and i watched yeah and then I'm, i'm watching i'm not watching I'm watching The Rookie, of course. Uh, I'm trying to think of what dramas I'm watching. I watch a lot of BoJack Horseman, a lot of 
Netflix dramas. Mm. I watched Sabrina, which was great. I really dug that. I saw a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I'm not, it's not scary, which is nice because I'm not a horror fan. But I'm getting more and more into movies recently. I think that's, it's hard for me to watch television and not try and break it down in my head. I can do that for movies okay, where I can just sit down and passively watch it and enjoy it. So. Yeah, when I'm on a show, it's hard for me to watch one hour. Oh, yeah. I have to watch half hour of reality. Same. Yeah, yeah, so. I'm the same. The Good Place. We're the Good Place about- is so good. Superstore is amazing. I haven't seen Superstore. Oh, Superstore is great. Okay. Superstore is great. Uh, I mean, the I think the one drama that I watch consistently is This Is Us, mm. because I just want to cathartically <laughs> cry every week. Great, great British Bake Off and, and the like. Yeah, Marie Kondo's tidying up. Oh, I need. To, yeah, I just I just watched one episode of that, and yeah. I need to actually go back and watch more of it. I'm, I watched Nailed It, which is great. <laughs> Nailed that. It is excellent. Um, is that dumplings? It's is that the dumplings? no. <laughs> <laughs> the same movie. It's the Pinterest fails. What? what? Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's people who suck <laughs> at doing anything and they're given these crafts to complete like cake pops in the shape of reindeer and they do a terrible job oh wow and it's great that's amazing it's, it's so much uh shot in there really there really is something for everyone yeah, it really is <laughs> yes i'm also i'm a big musicals fan so oh, I, I tend to go out and see a lot of musicals rather than Sit down and binge watch TV series now, which is nice. not great because I'm you're a TV writer. I'm a TV writer. <laughs> I'm seeing Come From Away tonight. It's oh. amazing. It is one of my favorite musicals of the last ten years. It's beautiful. It should have won the Tony, even though Ben Platt and Dear Evan Hansen was incredible, and that was the performance of a lifetime. Come From Away is just it's it's stunning. I keep hearing that, so yeah, I'm excited. It's great. Before we go, do you have any final advice for our listeners, be aspiring writers or working writers? I mean, this one's very simple, but I really just try and true. It's like you have to write. You have to work hard. I mean, like we our writers arguably have, in my opinion, the hardest thing because we're generating something from nothing. Everyone in this industry has a script to work with, directors, actors. But if you're a writer, you have to create something. And that is daunting, but you get to control. And also you get to control your own fate, like what stories you want to write. And if you really want this enough, you just have to sit down, put in the hours, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, whatever it takes to get to where you. And if you're good enough, I truly believe that like your script will find a way. You'll find people want to help you if you're a good person and you're mm-hmm. a good writer. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give... Slightly different advice from that, just because you said it already, but find your support system. And that doesn't mean going out and networking and collecting business cards. That means finding people that you like, who are your friends, who understand what you're going through, who are going to be in your corner when you're fired from a show and you can't get staffed for three years and who are just always going to have your back. It's not just people who are going to read your specs. They're going to be the people who go to movies with you and come over to your house for Christmas brunch and who you call at three in the morning when you've just seen The World's End for the 60th time <laughs> or Carol and you need to have a, an immediate discussion. No, yeah. About or, how good it is? Yeah, about yeah, how- LaToya, hello. I, <laughs> we have five hours, let's discuss. Yeah, your KBBQ crew. <laughs> it just, just people, you need people. This is a cutthroat industry and you need friends not just people who think of you as as a 
useful contact. tool as a contact, just people who you can relax with and who you can trust and you can be yourself around. Because when you do get staffed, the deeper you go down the rabbit hole, the more you're going to need those people. Mm-hmm. So find them now and don't let them go. Yeah. Don't let them go ever. That's great advice. All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page. That's at paperteam.co slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get some awesome goodies like cheat sheets from our most popular episodes, like TV Pilot 101, bringing the writer's room process home, etc. And we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So that brings us to the end of our episode. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in, and thanks to Kai and Liz for joining us. Thanks for oh, having yes, us. Yes, thank you for having us. I didn't know we were supposed to say no, anything. Yeah, <laughs> if like, you want to. like, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 119. And the 2019 Script Pipeline season is now open, and writers can submit by March 1st for a reduced entry fee. Script Pipeline finalists and winners receive extensive long-term industry exposure, and they have one of the biggest grand prizes for writing worldwide at $50,000. Learn more at scriptpipeline.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Uh, where can our listeners find you guys on Twitter? I'm at Xinhua Kai. That's C-H-I-N-O-I-S. K-A-I? I think that's my Twitter. Are you sure? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think so. Twitter that, 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 sounds, that sounds about right. She won't yes. yeah. She won't cry. I'm, I'm at Liz Alps, which is super easy. Um, A-L-P-S. Don't spell it wrong, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> but yeah, that's follow us on Twitter. We, we yell at each other a lot. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of funny. But obviously I'm not on Twitter that much. But now I will. You're you're there when we get into fights yes, about carols. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, obviously, yeah. obviously. Yeah, or if I'm just like eating cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving, I just want to troll you and LaToya. Yes. So if you're a Carol Stan, definitely go on Twitter. Yeah, You'll, yeah that's all I tweet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're going to be speaking to a writer, Julia Yorks, about transitioning into being a staff writer from being an assistant script coordinator and then writing for animation and other good stuff, being an actress as well, being shot on Jack Reacher. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we'll catch you guys then. See you then.